It was all a show, a Potemkin court. This is Russia today, a stuffy room presided over by a corrupt judge, policed by unthinking guards with lawyers who are there just to give the appearance of a real trial, with no defendant in the cage. A place where lies reign supreme, a place where two and two is still five, white is still black, and up is still down. A place where convictions are certain and guilt a given, where a foreigner can be convicted in absentia of crimes he did not commit. It says dirtbags in the title, we can do what we want. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. I make the money, man. I roll the nickels. The game's mine. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Enlightened Dirtbags podcast. I am version two, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jonah Condro. And today we're going to be covering Red Notice, a true story of high finance, murder, and one man's fight for justice by Bill Browder. Let me just set up the context for this book, because I think that'll be helpful for anybody that's interested in this book, and I think it'll be helpful for thinking about some of the themes and some of the scary things that occur in this book. So this is in post-Soviet Russia. The USSR basically dissolved December 26, 1991. And Bill Browder's a finance guy, and he heads into Eastern Europe in the early 90s. That's where he kind of gets his start. Not his start in finance, but that's kind of how he gets his start in this area of the world. And I think he's in Russia in the early nine, early to mid-90s. This is like a wild time to be in Russia and especially to be investing huge sums of money into the now privatized Russian companies. It's kind of a case of right place, right time, you know? Despite, you know, his uh, all of his knowledge and uh, education in this field, if it hadn't happened to have lined up, for him to be there when all of this happened, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's, he just kind of took advantage of something that was happening in the world at the time, and it just happened to work out. But there's so many other people in that industry at that time that just didn't go into Russia or didn't go into these countries that were having uh, similar economic situations, and he just was there and able to capitalize, right? But the interesting thing is he didn't go there knowing he could capitalize on this. He was kind of fueled by this desire to piss off his family with their communist roots, right? <laughs> I I kind of like this about Bill Browder's family history. He speaks about his grandfather, uh, one Earl Browder, who visited the Soviet Union in 1926. And like 
Router says of his grandfather, his American grandfather, like like most Americans, you know, you go to you go to the Soviet Union and then you just like bring home a Russian wife, right? So, but his his grandfather was actually sort of on the the U.S. government's hit list when they were kind of doing the so-called witch hunt for communists in like the fifties and sixties, right? And so Browder kind of has like this sort of counter will to his family where he says, well, what's one way that you can piss off your communist parents? Well, I'm just going to become the biggest capitalist. That momentum or that urge to piss off his family lands him in the world of high finance. Right. Like, I mean, and it comes from quite a miraculous family, honestly. Like, Like you mentioned, his grandfather, Earl, goes to Russia, becomes a spy for the Soviet Union, becomes the leader of America's Communist Party, and then is uh, imprisoned during the Second World War by Franklin Roosevelt. That alone is pretty phenomenal, and he talks about um, how that impacted him getting jobs in education, right? Like, oh, you're the grandson of one of America's most famous communists. But then his father, Felix Browder, who's actually born in Russia, uh, he becomes the president of the American Mathematical Society, head of the math department at the University of Chicago, and received the National Medal of Science. And then his mother and father have two sons. So we have Bill Browder and his brother Tom Browder. His brother Tom entered the University of Chicago at the age of 15 and became a leading particle physicist. Like this family is just just a whole collection of overachievers, right? And then you've got Bill, who comes out kind of not really knowing what to do and kind of explains himself to be a bit of a hooligan at his younger age until he gets this motivation, like you said, to become a successful capitalist just to piss off the communist roots in his family. And it it spirals down this crazy rabbit hole, but it all comes from just your typical, you know, young man's desire to like just cause some shit within the family tree. There was a story that Bill shared in the early chapters of his book. And I don't think he's at Yale yet. I think he's at a boarding school. So forgive me if I get this fact wrong, but this I know for sure is like, he got in trouble for getting in a fist fight, right? And so I think that little fact speaks to rebelliousness that Bill Browder has. And one thing too, and I'm glad you mentioned his brother and sort of coming from this incredible family, this incredible academic family, is right in the first page, Bill says of himself, like, I'm a numbers guy. He's well aware of his of his ability. And that coupled with just the time in which he's sort of coming up in the ranks in the financial world, and specifically being in Eastern Europe and having his gaze set on investing in the post-Soviet uh, Russia, he is basically setting like he becomes a mil- like spoiler alert he becomes a millionaire like he does very well for himself with his eventually with his own funds he definitely has i guess the family history the drive to sort of counter his own history and then plus he's just a, an incredibly smart person right so he he has everything he needs to be successful in the world of finance and he's there at the right time and that is so critical and even bill says that uh, once he gets to the point where he's investing in Russia, he acknowledges and he sees this opportunity as perishable. Like that's what he says at one moment in the book. Like he understands, like if if I don't act on this now, this is never going to happen again. 
Yeah, and I think it was when uh, he was in Poland, right? He uh, he kind of stumbles across the first privatizations of formerly state-owned businesses, right? And uh, I remember him saying, if you invested in this company and it stayed in business for six months, you would effectively make your money back. Now, anyone familiar with investing at all, making your money back in six months is almost unheard of, right? And then you'd think in another six months, you'd have at least doubled your money. You know, he just kind of realized that the time is now and he had to dive into it. And even when he was with that company at the time, when he was working in Poland, they didn't even have like a department for this. He's like wandering around the office and they're like, find a desk, I guess. And like, (laughs) nobody can help him. Nobody wants to give him a desk. They're kind of like, Hey man, you're insane for wanting to go do this. Like nobody is doing this. You know, it's, it's not a lucrative path to go down. And then he ends up becoming the CEO and co-founder of Hermitage Capital Management, which became the largest foreign portfolio investor in Russia at a value of $4.5 billion. That's huge. That's huge money in the 90s, right? Especially within such a short period of time. One thing that Bill Browder is good at is finding undervalued companies to invest in. And that's something that's key when you want to make big money investing. Because if a company has sort of already grown and expanded and made its huge leaps and bounds, you're not going to see those parabolic gains anymore in, for instance, in its stock price or whatever, right? So if you're able to, especially in the case, uh, and I believe it's like a Polish bus company, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So when he was still working for uh, like a third party company, right, he he goes over and they send him there by himself, like in his first year, they kind of send the seniors over for a big meeting and then they just leave. And he's in this garbage hotel. It's freezing cold and he's just expected to save this company. Yeah, because he was working as a consultant and the recommendations he ultimately had to give was like, you need to lay off your workforce to save money, right? And that was something that the company was like, no, thank you. Thanks, but no thanks, right? But when he's making these early investments, he's doing simple math to figure out the valuations of these companies. And he's just like, oh, like there is incredible potential here. And so Bill Browder is very open to just seeing things in very plain and simple terms when it comes to the balance sheets of these companies in a way that no one else was even really willing to keep their eyes open to right like you said when he was this one man sort of with his desk and he's like okay you're gonna go do this like i think he really understood that holy smokes like this is huge right this is huge opportunities and you know this is a different time financially right and i don't think that for us living now when we're recording this podcast these investment opportunities would even be remotely possible for us right it's sort of something like once in a lifetime, once in like in our history to be able to see these sort of investment potentials, right? Yeah. Reading this book immediately made me want to just like dive into this world, you know, hearing the figures (laughs) flying around. And very quickly I realized like, oh, this was a very unique time in history that this happened to work out. While he was in Poland, I think he gets assigned to the Murmansk trawler fleet. So they send him over to Russia to to deal with this Murmansk trawler fleet. And 
the Russian privatization allowed his company to buy a 51% stake in the trawler fleet for $2.5 million, right? Sounds like a lot of money. Bill runs the numbers, and he realizes that the fleet is worth approximately $1 billion. So they can get half a billion dollars worth of value for $2.5 million. Obviously, this is a great deal, and he kind of starts to go, well, is this a, is this a one-off? You know, or is this happening everywhere? Is this just the collapse of the Soviet Union is just causing like financial chaos? And it's a whole new economic system, right? That everyone has to get used to it. It's not like it's been established over years and years. And it they just kind of dropped the ball on the way they did it. And he happened to be there to capitalize. Something that reminded me about when Bill's investigating the, the trawler fleet and he speaks to a manager, an employee, I can't remember which, and when he's coming up with the valuation, right? So he knows he can buy it for a few million bucks. And he basically asks the guy, he's like, okay, how like how big is your fleet? If we were to sell everything today, what could we get? And then this guy's like, oh, well, this is how much you could get. And you know, Bill's jaw just about hits the floor because he understands that they don't really understand the undervaluation of these companies, right? So of course he's like, yes, please. Where, where can I get my 51%, right? I remember he kind of runs around the offices and making phone calls. And I mean, you got to remember at this time, it's not as easy as just calling someone on their cell phone, right? Like communication is much harder at this period in time. But he ends up having to go all the way to the offices in the United States to talk. One of the the company he was working for was Solomon. And uh, he ends up talking one of the executives there that's kind of notorious for, you know, taking a walk on the tightrope, you know, getting into the more risky investments and being quite successful. He talks this guy into putting $25 million into Russian investments, you know, and, and when you're looking at it, like, like we said, you can get half a billion dollars worth of value from $2.5 million. He talks this guy into putting $25 million into investments. It's obviously hugely successful. And he decides, I got to, I got to go into business for myself here. You know, he doesn't want to be the bottom of the totem pole. And especially because two of the companies he works for end up in real hot water financially. One of the company owners dies and they start investigating and, and they find uh, some signs of fraud. And he kind of has to dive out of that into another company that gets accused of fraud. And he goes, I like, I need to be doing this on my own and I need to be the head of this because no one else had even been trying it. And of course, the first step he takes is to recruit uh, billionaire Edmund Safra as an investor, like right off the bat, just a huge fish. And he just has all the initial capital that he needs and he can just start off with a bang. Bill Browder has a skill that is very important in this world of finance, his ability to network, his ability to read people. And I wouldn't say that he necessarily reads people, let's say, uh, just a throw back to No Domain and John McAfee, right? But I think he has an ability to really understand and see people and be able to get a sense of their emotions, even if they're not being upfront with him. So I get the sense that not only is he a numbers guy, not only is he right place, right time, but he also has this skill with people and he's able to put himself in the right situations, whether that's in an elevator, in a conference room, at a dinner, after a gala, that sort of thing. That's how he establishes a lot of these relationships. 
it's really phenomenal that he's able to sort of establish this network of people that he knows that makes him really successful, especially when he lands the billionaire Edmund Saffer, right? It's it's not something that I would be able to do. Even I could go and get the same education as Bill Browder, right? But I, I don't think I have the skills to even network at the same level that he does. It's actually quite phenomenal. And he speaks about it as if he's not even really doing any work. And so I find that really interesting about his character, right? I think he just has this weird sort of innate ability. Yeah, and there's quite a few times where he talks about having to dive into kind of his Rolodex of business cards and reach out to some obscure contact he had met along the way, you know, a journalist or a guy that sells, you know, like Financial Times magazines and all of this, right? And these contacts, you have somebody that knows a big investor, somebody that knows a billionaire, and he's able to just reel in these great connections by slightly keeping in touch with these key people throughout the book. And let me tell you, he ends up in some pretty hot water and some of these like last ditch efforts, these Hail Mary connections, they they work out for him, right? They, I mean, potentially save his life. I think it would be accurate to say that there's times where they do save his life. Uh, there's a moment kind of in mid-book where Bill Browder essentially is going to go to war. like That's the language that he uses with this one oligarch that's going to issue a bunch of shares and basically dilute the value that he has in this one particular company. And I believe it's Edmund Safra that hires a bunch of Israeli bodyguards. And like <laughs> Bill Browder, like, I think he goes home or is in his office and all of a sudden there's all these bodyguards and like one guy like reaches out his hand. He's like, yeah, we're here to protect you until all this blows over. Right. So he's getting into some heavy shit when a billionaire is like, okay, you need Israeli bodyguards for a while. Right. When you're in Russia. <laughs> yeah. He like shows up to his office and there's like 20 X IDF guys there just militarized <laughs> and ready to go. But that's the thing, you know, at this point in time, Russia is really the wild West and you're going up against these billionaires, the oligarchs, right? Like it's a small group of people of really wealthy men that almost stole away a huge amount of the capital after the collapse of the Soviet Union and just concreted themselves in this position of power. And then in comes Bill and he starts seeing these things, you know, when he's looking at investments, he starts noticing like, well, these shares are undervalued and who owns most of this company and how did they get it? And like you said, he talks about literally going to war. You know, he's calling journalists and putting out these news news articles, throwing shade at, at these extremely wealthy Russians. And everyone is kind of blown away. They're like, who is this American that's just come in and set off the fireworks? And I wouldn't say that his sort of aggressiveness towards the oligarchs in Russia is a natural character trait. He doesn't seem... The way that he comes across in his writing, and even when you look on his at his picture on the back cover of this book, you're like, oh, that's that's just a wealthy, probably slightly overweight, white business guy. I wouldn't really take him as being someone with sort of the gusto to stand up to the Russian oligarchs and eventually Vladimir Putin, right? Bill was a very interesting guy in that regards because he... he he almost seems like a bit of a like a nerd, almost, right? Like, I'm kind of hesitant to use that word, but he doesn't seem like the guy to use that kind of language, like going to war, right? So it's a very interesting sort of position he puts himself in, like you said, when he's 
when he's going to war against the oligarchs. Yeah, and he even mentions early in the book that he gets picked on quite a bit at this private school. He says himself that he's not overly confrontational, but it almost felt like he became possessed by this this goal when he moves to Russia. And he made a lot of sacrifice for it, right? Like he moves to Russia, he has a girl has a wife and a and a child back in England and he's going back and forth constantly uh, from England and Russia trying to run this business and keep his family afloat and he ends up losing that marriage because she just can't understand why he would be over there you know putting them in harm's way getting into confrontations with these oligarchs and you know putting them in the line of fire of these really dangerous people and he's just so hooked on this pursuit that uh, his wife ends up leaving him over it and so he's he's really invested in this not just financially but personally and emotionally as well and I think a lot of that plays a part in in how he deals with these conflicts and how head-on he goes. And uh, and also, eventually, once he's basically full-time in Russia, he ha- all of his staff is Russian. So it they talk about how personal it is for them when they're finding out that these oligarchs have just stolen millions, hundreds of millions of dollars from the Russian people, and everyone's living in poverty, and these guys who make basically nothing on paper or just raking in all of this cash. Like they just stumble upon this unbelievable level of corruption. And I wouldn't say it was initially his, his actual goal, you know, to shine a light on this corruption. But I think he feels the responsibility to once he finds it, especially being in this community of Russians at his office as well. Just to give you a sense of, sort of what it was like to be at the street level in Russia at this time when he's building up his fund with Hermitage. He mentions that you could basically get a ride from anyone on the street because everyone was so hard up for money at this point that you could just hail anyone and they wouldn't be a cab. They'd just be somebody going home at the end of the day and they would give you a ride just because they needed the money. That's how hard up a lot of these people were, right? And so I think that's sort of important to remember that it's not that everyone was looking for, you know, food and water. Like there definitely was some sort of an economy at this point. But like you said, the oligarchs pillaged Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Right. So everyone was hard up for cash. And I think that's very important moving forward. And that's something that I'm glad you mentioned it. When you talk about the people that Bill Browder hires to run his company in Russia, because it really keeps him connected, the real livelihood of Russians at the time, right? Had he gone over there and just brought in an American, brought in somebody from England, oh, I'll bring in somebody from France, like just brought in people from the West, I believe that he probably would have had a different attitude to the corruption in Russia. But because he was working in Russia, hiring Russians, I believe that gave him a different perspective on the corruption. And I, I think you're right. It made him a lot, it made it a lot harder for him just to try to walk away because he doesn't even hint at that at any moment when when shit's getting really real for bill right he just like i said he just sort of like he doesn't put his head down but he definitely doesn't back away from the fight yeah i mean uh just to carry on with uh your point about anybody picking up fares he gets picked up by an on-duty ambulance at one point (laughs) when he's trying to get a ride somewhere like that's the state of things like 
the ambulance guys are driving around looking for people with their handouts so that they can give them a ride somewhere and make some extra cash. Like it, it really is. It really is in quite a state when he's there to carry on with, with your thought there. His fund loses like billions of dollars at one point, like a huge percentage. And, and he's there, like a lot of people are pulling out and he's like, no, we're here because there's everything's at play with presidential elections, right? You know, they're, they're talking about basically going back to the Soviet Union at one point, taking a step away from this kind of democratic structure, and everyone panics. They're like, oh, they might just take it all back. Everything that we're invested in, all these foreign investments that are here, Russia might just take ownership of it again. And everyone starts panicking and pulling out, and he stays there with the fund because he knows, he's confident, and he's so committed to it that he's like, no, no, no. We're going to ride this out and we're going to get this fund back up to even higher than it was before. Like you said, he never even hints at walking away despite, you know, his wife leaving him, the fund losing a massive amount of money. He's just in it for the long run, kind of until Russia kicks him out, right? <laughs> like, and that's I, at this. I think this is a good time to mention that. I think the story of Bill Browder being so successful in this industry is it is a great story, but if it was that alone, you know, if it was just this is how this American guy came up and got an edu- education and went to Russia and, you know, ran this huge fund, it would be a very good book to the right person, but I don't think it's a book I would have bought, you know, and I intentionally tried to avoid Googling too much about this story before we got into this book. So when I I was kind of expecting like a boring first half or a boring intro where it's just talking about finance and investing and whatever, but he did a great job with this opening scene telling the story of when he gets denied access to Russia and they won't tell him why they put him into this tiny little room, you know, with staff that don't speak any English or at least just won't speak to him at all. And he's there for day and a half or something like that or he just and no food no water no bathroom breaks they just hold him there with no information and then just finally they send him home after hours and hours of reflecting upon like what have I done why did I go after these oligarchs like why did I think that I could do this you know just this guy you know from New Jersey USA that kind of has an education in finance and I'm just going to tackle these billionaires and then they send him home and just don't really tell him why he can't get into Russia. And it's his first taste of the real corruption and power that these people have. There's a couple of things in that situation that Bill mentions. Where he's like, he, he wasn't given any food or water. And he describes this as something very Russian to do, right? They're intentionally making him uncomfortable by not giving him inf- any information. And keep in mind, he doesn't have his passport. The authorities took his passport. So he's sitting in this room. He's like, I don't have my passport. I don't know what's happening. All of a sudden, he's being ushered onto a plane. And I believe it's the pilot that says, oh, by the way, this is for you. As Bill goes to get off the plane when he's back in England, oh, there's his passport. And that was it. He was like, there wasn't really much said about it other than, you know, okay, you're in England now, buddy. Good luck, right? (laughs) Yeah, like it would be so nerve wracking. Like knowing the power that these people have, knowing you're being held. And he talks about in that beginning section, he talks about all of the other financial people that he's read about and journalists that he's read about that just disappeared in these communist countries, right? Never to be seen again. Put on trial for something, 
found guilty regardless, you know, no actual trial and just disappeared. And that's just running through his head for like an entire day while he's sitting in this room and he's looking around and he's like, I'm the only guy here in a suit. This is like a bunch of miscreants, just a mismatched collection of hooligans. And he's like, this is it for us. Like, this is the end. I've made a huge mistake and that's it. I thought that that really did a good job of getting me hooked right away. Because as soon as I read that, I was like, oh man, I can't wait to get back up to that part and see where the story goes from there. Because it was kind of a halfway point where we start diving into the whole Magnitsky Act, right? And that really is the key point of this book. So I thought it was awesome. He gets you hooked right away and then gives you his background about his family and his education and all of that and how he ends up becoming this huge investor in Russia. And so you're invested. You're like, I know we're getting to this really cool point that's almost this like spy thriller type thing, you know, like espionage world. And so you feel like you want to go through all that information. You want to know all the background because I definitely know some people that would be as interested in that. But like I said, that alone isn't a book that I would have picked up or that I would have continued with if I didn't get that taste of excitement at the beginning. And you really, you really want to dive in after that. I'm glad you brought up some of those points, specifically about how he structures the opening of this book and then sort of building up to the moment where he's booted out of Russia. Because I think you're right. That's when the real story starts, where it kind of shifts from a focus on Bill and what he's doing. And then it, it focuses on uh, this this poor bastard. Uh, I'm going to butcher his name, but Sergei uh, Magninsky. Is that how we're saying it? Yeah, Sergei... Uh... Leon, Leonidovich Magnitsky. Russian names, man. It's always a struggle to get through. They sound so cool, and when they say it, they say it so fast, and you're like, man, it sounds awesome. You sound like a Bond villain, but it sounds awesome. And yeah, that was, uh, it was his tax lawyer, right? Yeah, that's right. And so I think that's sort of important to take into consideration if you're curious about this book or if you've just bought this book and you haven't read it yet, is that it's... It's kind of like the camera's pointing one way. If if you think about it as a movie, then all of a sudden you're you're going down a different narrative, right? But for me, I've read um, a few finance books over the last couple of years. This is not something that I'm very well versed in, hence why I'm reading books about it. This is probably a book that I probably, had I known the right information about it and wasn't reading it in the context for this podcast, especially in a season on crime and conspiracy. This is probably something that I would have read had this not been on our reading list for this season, uh, just because it does sort of dive into that very corrupt world of high finance. It's been about a year since Russia invaded Ukraine at the time of where we're recording this podcast, right? So I think that sort of makes it more appealing to, to read, right? Because you're like, Bill is definitely on Putin's radar and basically becomes an enemy of Putin by the end of this book. And so I think there's, for me, there's a lot of uh, world events that sort of contribute to this book being more interesting to read. And keep in mind, it was published in like 2015. So it's still pretty recent in the context of sort of current events right now. It's interesting you mentioned uh, that he's become this this enemy of Putin. I actually watched a lot of uh, interviews up with him after reading this book, and he's still a very large critic of Putin. He's kind of put himself in the spotlight, you know, and people come to him all the time for interviews about what's happening in the Ukraine. Like, he kind of went from 
you know, high finance to like global politics almost, you know, kind of switched paths. And I don't think he would have ever seen this coming, but it's all due to this pivotal moment, right? You know, this spot in the middle of the book where we really go off the deep end when, you know, his fight against this corruption really catches up with him. You know, he gets kicked out of Russia. He starts getting threats and he's trying to run this operation, you know, from England and he still has an office in Russia and they're like, his office is getting illegally raided. His lawyer's office is getting illegally raided. His tax advisor's office is getting illegally raided. And they just steal possession of some of his companies. It's all gone through court. The lawyers that are there to represent him, he's never heard of, he's never spoken to. And they just take possession of these companies and then try to charge him with fraud for these companies. And it's this insane battle where they really they really bring in the heavy artillery, right? And that's when it goes from just a story of investing to true, like, global crime and conspiracy. When he's getting booted out of Russia, and he understands now, he's like, okay, I got to get the money out. And I remember he talks about hiring. There was a trader that really wanted to do business uh, with Hermitage. And so he gives this trader a job and he's like, okay, we got to move all of our money out, but you can't make it seem like we're moving our money out or else they're going to act. Right. So they effectively sort of snuck all the money out of Russia. But when you're talking about these illegal raids, Bill called it the Russian raider attack, right? Where they essentially steal all the important documents and the important seals of the company. And this is sort of how you steal a company. And when I was reading about this, I was like really fast. I'm like, how do you just steal a company? That's like somebody trying to steal Microsoft. Like, how do you steal Microsoft from Bill Gates, right? It just seems completely far-fetched that this would be something that they'd be even trying to attempt. And I don't really know the ins and outs of how this works because I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to high finance and I really don't understand Russian law at all. I would say I have a 0% understanding of Russian law. But having once they have these seals and they s- steal a company... Then they're able to make these documents seem legit and something like that. But what they were trying to do is even though these companies were basically shells at this point, they were trying to get tax back from the Russian government and they were trying to refund the taxes back to the company. And then the people that stole Bill Browder's company would then receive the tax money back. So it was this really sort of complex scheme to steal a company so they could apply and get a tax refund, which would be several hundred million dollars. They weren't necessarily stealing from Bill Browder at this point, even though they stole his empty shell of a company, but they were trying to steal the taxes back from the Russian government. So it was a very complex financial scheme. And it it takes some time for Bill to sort of really start to understand what's happening and the real implications of what's going on in Russia. And so for me, because I have a little bit of interest in the financial world and the investing world and that sort of thing, I was like, oh man, like this is, there was a lot of sort of tension and excitement for me at this point in the book when I sort of start to begin to understand what was happening. I was like, this is sort of like the oh fuck moment, right? And this is where it really becomes personal to his staff, right? Because in stealing this money back from the Russian government or getting it refunded back from the Russian government, they're stealing it from the taxpayers. And like you said, it's several hundred millions of dollars. 
at a time when most people are living in poverty. And these oligarchs and members of the government are just raking in the cash. So, of course, his staff is like, this, this is our own government stealing from us. Like, we need to do something about this. And they start going public about it. You know, they start making YouTube videos because he talks about how this is kind of a new thing and his staff kind of has to, like, teach him how to do this because he has no idea the power of YouTube. And it was, <laughs> it was kind of funny to hear him learn this along the way. Like, wait a minute, we can just make videos and put them on the Internet? Like, we don't have to go through a newspaper or through a journalist or something? Like, we can just weaponize this ourselves? And so he really does play the whole field like he goes through the newspapers he goes through the governments and the international agencies and then he also creates these youtube videos and i was astonished at how strategic he is you know whether it was him or his team but they they come up with these like really well done youtube videos about these specific targets that they're going after because uh, there's a lot of names that routinely come up right i'm not going to go through them because i'll butcher all of them but <laughs> <laughs> but these names that keep coming up kind of as his main main enemy, right? The people that are targeting him. And they'll create these phenomenal YouTube videos that you... I mean, you could almost consider a smear piece, but the problem is it's all factual. And they even time them. Like, they create them ahead of time and prepare for, like, we're going to wait for this news article to come out. And then when that gets the attention, boom, we're going to hit this YouTube video, post it up online to really keep the ball rolling. You know, the key being, it's the same thing we saw um, with John McAfee. You know, keeping the story alive is is such a phenomenal tool for people in this position, especially when you're going against the government, just like John McAfee was. And yeah, I was I was astonished at, at how well he played this. And of course, having lawyers on his side and some tech people on his side, but it's he's doing all of this from England. And he, he ends up having to move some of his team out of Russia because they're getting so many threats. You know, like there's a real concern that people might start disappearing or getting arrested and they're scrambling to find ways to get people out. But of course, when you're in a country like that with this much corruption, you can't just get on a plane and leave. You've got to worry about if your passport gets scanned, are you going to get pulled aside and never be seen again? Or if you try to, you know, pass a border crossing what's going to happen and they really really have to be tactical about how they get their team out regroup back in england and kind of start a fortified front in this assault against this corrupt government and these oligarchs i believe it's one of his lawyers and i believe this gentleman had some sort of health complications so it wasn't like he could just get in a car and travel for long distances or get on a plane he had to be really considerate into how he went about traveling because he could have some serious medical, uh, there were some serious medical implications, you know, with his health. And there's this moment where I believe it's, I believe it's one of his lawyers and he's like going through uh, a Russian air, uh, airport and he's got his passport. And it's sort of at the moment where, like you said, is my passport going to get scanned? Is it going to get flagged? And then at that moment, it's like the guy just looks at it and gives it back to him, right? Like doesn't even bother doing his job. He's like, yeah, get on a plane, bro. You're good to go to England, right? And so there's a lot of these moments in the book where you feel the tension of the men and women that he's talking about. And you're like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Like, is this like, is this it, right? And you're like, oh, he made it, right? And there's there's times where I just like, okay, I just got to like, 
take a minute here, and then I'd jump into the next chapter because there'd be so much tension with, because you know it's Russia, and you just know that they would just be like, yep, you go sit in this room now, and we're going to take you to jail. Right? Like You know that that's not improbable in this strange, corrupt context of Russia, right? Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but in a Russian accent. And yeah, like it really does feel like a spy thriller movie, you know, but unlike the spy thriller movies where usually the good guy like, oh, there's the, you know, intense moment where are they going to get through? Are they going to notice him? And then he gets by and you're like, oh, yay, happy ending. It's not exactly how it goes with this, right? He does get most of his team out. But like you were saying, there was some health issues with one particular person, which was Sergei Magnitsky. He had even been hesitant to leave in the first place. And uh, he was younger than, than the rest of the group. And so they said he hadn't really seen as much of the Soviet era to, to understand you know, how deep this corruption runs. And he always believed that, like, no, this is my country. Like, I'm going to fight this battle, you know, on home turf, and I'm going to stand for what I believe in. And they were trying as hard as they can to convince him to get out. And it doesn't pan out for him. In uh, 2008, they end up arresting him, which is kind of funny because he gets arrested for exposing corruption. Like, that's what he did, but they throw him in jail without any real charges, to be honest with you. Like, it's all based around the tax fraud of these companies that were stolen, which they don't even technically own anymore. It's so strange that the company gets stolen and then they're charging you for fraud, even though they stole the company from Bill, right? So it's it's under such strange and backward circumstances that Sergey gets arrested, right? Yeah, and the tale of his time in prison is... It's brutal. Oh, this man. poor bastard. This poor bastard. And they say that like he kept a journal. Like he was a very detailed man and he he documents everything. He gets names of the prison guards. He keeps dates of everything that happened. You know, once his health really starts to spiral and they're denying him medical attention, you know, he's got names of 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 each guard when they when they won't allow him access to a medic. And then when they do allow him access to a medic, who is basically just there to tell him you're not getting any attention. You should have had this dealt with before because they're moving him around prisons. And the, the medic basically just says, well, you've already seen the doctor. And he's like, that was two months ago in a different prison. And she's like, well, you should have figured it out there. Like, this is your, this is your problem and it's your fault. Like, clearly it's not a big deal if you didn't get it figured out before. And it's like, well, they weren't letting me get medical attention. So what was I supposed to do? And I think he spends 11 months basically just continuously being tortured and left in these like tiny cells with another person that are freezing cold. There's no plumbing. Like he talks about him and and the, and his uh, fellow inmate having to like share this elevated surface because the floor is just covered in sewage because they have no working plumbing. And this is months and months and months. Like I think it was just short of a year he was in prison but he ends up using his knowledge of the legal system to like help other inmates and almost becomes famous in prison for helping people you know it was it was a really cool story and i know 
you know, unfortunately, even if you just read the back of the book, you don't even have to know the whole story of what happened in the world. You didn't have to hear this on the global news. If you read the back of the book, it says right there, right? Because it's such a key point. You know he's not going to make it, but I still found myself, like, hoping that somehow he does. Like, the back is just a joke or something, and, like, the whole <laughs> Magnitsky act never happened. Because you're, you're really rooting for this guy. And what he goes through is just awful. And so... After 11 months, they finally send him to a hospital because he's basically dying. He thinks he's going to get medical attention. And then they just put him into this side room in the hospital and essentially beat him to death and then tell the coroner to say that he died of, like, heart failure. And then refuse to release the body to the family, say it has to go immediately to the funeral home, no previewing or anything. Like, it, it's just corrupted at every turn. At that point, it's difficult to read because you're just like, oh man, like they're, they're even being corrupt after this guy's dead, you know? And it it just broke my heart because there's photographs, uh, in the center of the book. And one of them shows like, I believe it's Sergei's wife. Once they finally do get the body back or they have like a a funeral and there's a casket and you're just like, man, like even after this guy's dead, they're just like, nope, nope, can't have him back. And you're just like, oh, right. And it's it's such a frustrating, corrupt attitude to try to understand. And that's what I sort of felt as I was getting into the heavy moments of the book because I was just so frustrated. I was just so frustrated. I'm like, there's no break. There's no magic whizzy lawyer in Russia that gets him out. There's there's nothing that there's no turn of events that oh, and then all of a sudden he like magically got better or, or anything like that. He just like his health gets worse and worse and worse. He's beaten to death and then they can't even respect the family enough to release his body. They're like, no, it's got to go straight to the morgue, right? So it's just, it's incredibly difficult to read. It's frustrating. You feel bad and you're just like, man, this is so fucked. Yeah. And they say that like a couple times he's taken into a court and they're like, all you have to do is basically just admit guilt to this tax fraud and and he's standing so strong in his beliefs that he's like, I, I will not, I will not lie about what has happened. You know, I believe in the truth and I will not plead guilty to these charges that I had nothing to do with, you know, to the point that he probably knew quite early on that he wasn't going to make it and just still sought out to the end. And it's insane. Like, like you said, it's so frustrating reading this story of his imprisonment and it, it doesn't get easier afterwards like when they start you know trying to make someone have someone responsible for his death the official position originally of the russian government is that he wasn't even arrested they're like oh we never even arrested him there's no way that happened and it's what he spent a year in prison we have it all documented and they're like no he wasn't even arrested and then they start changing the story and then they're like oh well no he died of heart failure and it's like, well, the doctor didn't even get to see him till after he was dead. They beat him to death in the hospital. But, you know, like we said, he, he documented all of this so well that they had an overwhelming amount of evidence. And you would think this is kind of the point of the sad ending, but this is really just where the battle starts. After everything else they've gone through, they, he promises the wife, you know, that they will do something to find justice for Sergei, you know? And they need to start going through these channels. Like, again, his networking comes into play so 
it's it's so impressive the way he starts reaching out to these people in the American government to start trying to put sanctions on these specific Russians that played a part and, you know, trying to get their passports revoked, trying to get their international assets seized, even though it's like, okay, I mean, they're not even going to go to jail, but at least you can take something from them. And this battle, this, so it ends up getting coined the Magnitsky Act, which is essentially uh, giving America the, America and uh, England the ability to deny passport access and seize international assets from these criminals. And he now gets into this weird global world of politics. You know, at this time, Obama is the president of the United States, and he's kind of walking this line of the Great Reset with Russia, right? They're trying to establish some form of civility with Russia and get away from this constant state of hostility, you know, that's just lingering since the Cold War. And so, of course, they want to do the right thing, but also Obama doesn't want to start a battle with Russia again, and you have to go through senators and how all these bills get pushed through and who's going to back it, who's not going to, and it's a nightmare, man. I felt so bad for his team trying to get through this because it's it's just an extremely uphill battle, and you never really know like who's on your side, who's telling you the truth, who's actually interested, who's going to just turn around and do the opposite of what they said they would do simply because they're looking to get this higher position in the government. You know, oh, well, if I back this, it's it's going to be bad for my career. Like, that's what these people are focused on. And it was just so stressful watching all of this happen. And you're like, man, Sergey didn't make it. Please let something happen here. And this was huge global news for a long time. And again, they have to use YouTube videos and newspaper articles and all of this to try to leverage the opinions of of the people to be able to put pressure on right like and it's a game you would think that he knew how to do this all along like he's a professional in this just because his team does such a good job of using public opinion to put pressure on people to do the right thing when bill turns his hopes to america to get this act passed i remember i felt like oh america's the superhero in this book they're going to do what America does and make it all right. And so I definitely share your sentiments when you just, it's almost like America and their government and their political system, like cold blooded and almost like stonewalled Bill's attempts to get redemption for Sergey, right? With passing this act. And there's several times where he's getting prepped by his team to have a meeting with a senator or a congressman or whomever he's meeting in this in the states, and Bill's like, "Okay, yeah, I'm I'm going to fill him in with Sergey's story, and they'll have no choice but to support this, right?" And a lot of his team members, right, they're like, "This guy in this office in Washington D.C. probably knows more about the circumstances around Sergey than you do. They already know what's going to go down." So just flapping your lips, just trying to tell a sob story. They already know it, right? So it's just, yeah, there's this moment you're like, okay, he's go, he's going to America and he's going to get, you know, their political system to, to get, you know, to do something. And you're just like, man, like there's this setback after setback after setback. And you're just like, how the, like, how the fuck does this like come about in the end? Right? 
like you said, the first half of the book is really focused on Bill and sort of climbing the financial ladder. The second half of the book is about the poor bastard, Sergey. And then really, Bill kind of comes back in as a character at this point. And he's really trying to like knock down the doors of these politicians and make this happen. So it, it becomes sort of like this wild ride. And you're just like, I just... I didn't even really remember how it was going to end. And it, it almost starts to feel like a movie at this point, right? Like what happened to the book about investing, right? And lawyers and this, like it, it almost takes a twist in what kind of a book this is that you're reading in, in the, in the latter chapters. You're so invested in it. It's, Pulling on the heartstrings, you know, you really wanted Sergey to make it through, even though you know he doesn't. And then when he doesn't, the, he ties in the wife and the family so well. I have to do the right thing by them. And like I said, you could read the back of the book and know the result, but it's it's gone. You forget it. You're you're just there, you know, page by page. You're like, man, what's going to happen? He's getting stonewalled by the government, and he's back and forth between the UK and the United States and just talking to senators. It gets to a point where like he's just with a journalist in the halls of these government buildings and kind of just like ambushing people, trying to get talking points and and you know just trying to get, make some progress here. And I truly think that if he had just put it in the hands of the government and waited it out like most people would, like you're probably supposed to, it would never have gone through. You know, he has to constantly push and he's calling people over and over again. And what's the update? But he gets really lucky, actually. I think it was one of the senators, one of the first senators he ends up talking to. He himself was actually imprisoned once, similar to Sergei's scenario. And so he can really relate to it. And that guy really drives it home. You know, you've got someone on the inside to really pull on the strings and make the system work. But even then, they kind of have to it's interesting they leverage like, oh, if you want us to sign on on this bill, because it has to be bipartisan, right? Like if you want us to sign on on this bill, and of course getting both sides of the house and the government to agree on anything is so difficult because they'll just weaponize it against each other. And they end up having to say, if you want us to sign on on this bill, you have to sign in on this. Like it's like a hostage situation, you know? And that's the only way they can push it. It's just insane, man. Like it really makes you almost resent the government systems. You're like, this is something, as a, as a human being, you know, this is something that should be going through. There should be more. You know, there should be an international witch hunt for the guys responsible for this, the many people responsible for this, especially with all of the evidence. And still, even just getting this act passed to restrict their, you know, ability to globetrot is hard enough. And you're like, if it hadn't gone the way it had, I would have been so let down. I would have just been so bummed at the end of this book. And I think Bill did a great job towards the end with not really letting you feel like it's a happy ending, you know? Like, he talks about how this is one small drop in the pond. And this has happened to so many different people. He just happens to know Sergey, But this has happened to hundreds of thousands of people over the years and is still happening to people. And even though they can restrict access to different countries for these people, it does not stop how they act within the walls of their own country. And he really keeps driving that point home. Like it felt like for him, this became his new purpose in life is not, we got this Magnitsky act passed. 
that's it. I'm good now. It was, we need to keep fighting for this for everyone else who has been affected, for the people that are still being affected in Russia. You know, it's almost like a second family he has over there. And I don't think that Bill Browder dons the superhero cape. I don't get the sense that he's being egotistical or he's trying to be a superhero or be a hero or anything like that. I think you've really hit the nail on the head when you say he was just trying to do the right thing by Sergei's family, right? And what really opened my eyes to that appealing character trait of Bill Browder is there's, I can't remember if it's like sort of like the final moment, but it's one of the moments where he shows up to one of the hearings in in Washington or wherever he is in the States. And just like the regular security guards, like, oh, you can't come in here. And he's like, oh, okay. Right. And he's not like he's trying to sort of swing his dick to, to get inside. And then I think it's like one of the politicians is like, no, no, like this, this guy is kind of important. You need to let him in. Right. So even at that level where he's like, no, 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 like he's not even trying to push that he's the guy that's trying to make it all happen. He's like, oh, okay, if I'm not allowed in, I'm not allowed in. There's this sort of really weird way that he follows the rules almost where you'd be like, oh, man, Bill, like you're you're totally allowed to be in there. Like, I don't understand why you're taking the stance. And it doesn't even seem like he even tries to challenge this this security guard of this door guy's authority he's like oh okay i'll just i guess i'll wait out here and then like a politician's like no no like he's with us and that's sort of like a cool moment you know where he's like oh okay like and then and then he's like allowed in to see this hearing or this vote or whatever it is right so i think that really speaks to bill's character that he's not trying to be the superhero and get the fame and and the public eye on him he really is trying to do the right thing by Sergey, right? And he's not trying to take credit for something that he doesn't deserve for all the good that he's trying to do with all this sort of new humanitarian tasks that he's taking on. At a lot of times, it almost felt like he had an imposter syndrome of sorts. You know, like like you said, the example where he can't get in to see the vote is is so funny because... Like he's Bill Browder. He's the guy that's making this happen. He's the guy that put this forward, that's been driving this the whole time. And as much as he wants to be in there, he kind of just accepts that he might not get in. You know, you would think he would be one of the first people to get in, but he's just there with like all the other general public standing in line, hoping they can get in. Even though he's, he's basically the star of the show, but I really like that he never really, like you said, donned the superhero outfit. Like it was really all about Sergei and not not about him. It's not him doing something for the world and look at me. It's 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 just what's right. And that's it. So this book, as I stated before, it's not really a topic that I have a lot of knowledge in. And I thought that Bill did a really good job of giving you just enough information to understand the financial world and understand what's happening without really feeling like he's a professor, like teaching you a course. Because there was a lot of things in here that if if I had just like taken one section out and started reading about it, especially like all the different types of the different types of shares and how they're passing these tickets around and all of that, like I wouldn't have understood it. 
but he gives you just enough information to get it without beating you to death with it and keep and still keeps it entertaining you know like i i enjoyed every portion of the book even in the beginning when he's talking about you know coming up uh through university like when he's making jokes of the guys that they're doing interviews with <laughs> the guys in the suits and how they're like just so cliche and cookie cutter <laughs> and he's giving them nicknames and all of that you know and uh, he keeps it pretty lighthearted until it doesn't need to be anymore but he doesn't give you too much of a lesson and just gives you enough to really understand the significance of each thing that's happening in this investing world and I like that he really describes why he's so hooked on it you know he talks about this tingling greedy tension in his gut that he gets when he finds these deals because otherwise like most people would be like hey man your wife and kids are back home your wife and child sorry and they don't want you to be there anymore your relationship is falling apart you're already hugely successful just carry on back home man and he just he does a great job of of explaining why he can't why he feels this need to continue driving forward with it and and really make you understand where his head is at, you know? And there isn't a pig-headedness about him either when he sort of refuses, because basically his first marriage fails, and then he ends up marrying, I believe it's a, a Russian woman that he had hired, uh, or I don't know if it was a Russian woman that he hired, but it, it was sort of like that that sort of cliched moment where you know, in the movie where the camera pans and there's like the the Russian vixen and you're like, oh, that's that's the lady, right? That's sort of the moment when when he meets his his second wife. So you're right. There's there's a lot of moments where anyone else would be like, you know, I'm going to go chill with my family. I'm going to go spend time with my family. I'm going to go, you know, he basically has to get convinced by any one of his wives to go on a vacation, right? Like, hey, we need to go take this vacation. And he's like, no, no, I got to work, right? So there, there isn't necessarily, like I said, a stubbornness. There, there, I didn't get the sense that he was stubborn or pig-headed, but it just, he comes across as someone who has this, there's like this insatiable drive to do this, right? Because that is part of his character, I believe like that this book sort of has the capability to hit a broader audience. You're not going to read Bill Browder and think like, oh, I really don't like this guy. I think that he's a very likable guy for no matter who you are as a reader, right? Like, I don't think necessarily being like a male, female reader, or even coming from a different sort of political background or even a different sort of national background or ethnic background, like so long as you can like read it in English, right? I think that there's something about Bill Browther's character that kind of leaves him, leaves the reader okay with who he is. Like, I don't like, because I think you could definitely read just to sort of compare it to No Domain and John McAfee. There's some people that'd be like, I don't like that guy. And I think they have, they could probably have very good reasons for not liking someone like John McAfee, but someone like Bill Browder, I think he's easier to like in that regard, which makes it, uh, an easier book or a better book for more people to read. I think that a book like No Domain has a, probably a narrower audience at the end of it, whereas a book like Red Notice has a very large potential audience just because of the character, just because of Bill Browder's character. Yeah, he's very relatable, you know? 
he's quick to point out his own flaws, mistakes that he's made, times that he's been in the wrong. You know, there's a lot of these kinds of stories, you know, especially when we're talking about rich people and high finance and we almost see these people like movie stars, you know, like they're larger than life, like they're a different species, you know? And he does a very good job of reminding you that he's just a man, you know, he's just another person. He wasn't an overachiever at a young age. He explains what, what drove him down this path and how it's not like he was on this, you know, he had this goal to just become super rich and flashy, you know? And he even almost talks in a condescending way of some of the rich people that he deals with throughout it you know the way they hold meetings who has to get there first and you know the showboating and peacocking of it all he feels so much more like a common man despite the fact that you know his accomplishments are phenomenal you know what he did in that time and you could say some of it was luck but a lot of it was you know he saw a door and dove through it despite a lot of people telling him not to and uh, and it took him down this greater path, you know, almost like it was meant to be in some way. But you never feel like he's more than any of us. And he always, he talks about his own fear. He talks about his own anxiety and everything like that. You know, he feels very human throughout the whole book. And uh, that was something that I, I really appreciated. Especially, you know, it's a true story. You know, he's not, he can't just be going through these battles with these oligarchs like it was nothing and like, I'm going to take them down. Like, no, he it deeply explains his real fear for himself and his friends and his family and how nerve-wracking these scenarios are. There's an honesty to Bill Browder that I really appreciate because he's not trying to be the top dog in every situation. He's not trying to be the, the know-it-all in every situation. He's an incredibly intelligent person that can find undervalued companies and make very good in investments. And he's very good at what he does, but he's also very upfront about when he doesn't understand something or when he's confused, or like you said, when he has anxiety, because there's moments where he describes a conversation with one of his associates or employees in Russia. And he's like, I don't understand the implications of this. He just says it outright. He's like, no, I don't understand. He's not like, Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, he's not trying to be like this, this pompous ass. It's like, no, no, I, I understand. And in fact, I was actually just thinking about this a couple days ago. So this is actually old, old news to me. He's like, no, no, what does this mean? And then this guy has to explain it to him. He's like, oh, oh, so like, is this like a credible threat? Like, I don't, I don't understand like why we're so worried about this. And so you're right. He is a very, he's, he's definitely not an everyman, but I think there's something about him that makes him approachable like he's not trying to sit above everyone else when he you know he's obviously got millions of dollars in the bank right who knows at this point he could even have billions of dollars in the bank right but there's something about him that in the way that he comes across in the way that he's honest with how he understands the situation that makes it an easier character to go along the ride with yeah, 100%. And, you know, he gives credit when credit is due. He speaks highly of the people on his team. He always talks about when someone else has a good idea that really benefited them. Instead of being like, hey, I did this, I did that. It was always we. He talks about their excitement and their families and the risks that they're taking. You know, it's he's, he's very humble. And he for sure could have wrote this book to make him sound like the hero, especially since a lot of the time he was isolated for it, right? 
you know, a lot of the time it would be hard to verify and it's just kind of written on an honor system. And I think he did a, a great job of, of giving credit to everyone involved, expressing the emotions of all of this. And, you know, there's lots we didn't dive into. Like there's a lot more of the criminal espionage side of this. Like when that fellow comes along with the tip and they don't know if they can trust him or if it's a trick by Russia to try to get him back or whatever it is, you know, and they're getting this inside information and they, they talk about real credible threats to his life back home. You know, the reach that Russia has even in England to poison people or make people disappear, kidnap people. And there's a lot of this that comes into play where, you know, like we said, this isn't a superhero. This is just, he's a successful guy, but he's just a guy, you know, and he's, with his family and potentially putting them at risk and very, very much so putting his own life on the line for this. And the, the intensity is insane. And I'm so happy that he did a good job of relating that to us in a way that, you know, we would probably, we would probably see it the same way. You know, we would be afraid and we would be nervous and having no idea what's happening and just like not making him out, making himself out to be, you know, a man of steel. And uh, another thing that I appreciate is he shows his own faults when he meets his wife. <laughs> you know, how awkward he is with that. Like, instead of making himself this suave, fancy businessman, you know, he talks about when he's kind of fumbling and nervous around her. And it felt so relatable to me that it, that really brought me in. Again, like I said, I didn't have the connection to the finance world. But to me, it was just like, I always think about what would I do in this situation? You know, if there's a bank robbery, what would I do if I was one of the people there? You know, like I always like to tell myself that, you know, I would stand up and tackle the guy and wrestle the gun away or whatever. In real life, most people would probably be pissing themselves. And Bill Browder could have wrote himself as the hero, but he did a great job of being like, no, man, I was basically on the verge of pissing myself, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Because this is scary as hell. There's a moment where he talks about an interview with Putin and Putin actually says his name. And he mentions that Putin is notorious for not naming people, especially on television, because he doesn't want to give them the notoriety. He'll call them that man. You know, he doesn't what doesn't want to use their name because it makes them bigger. It makes them more important. You know, it. And in the, in that moment, when Putin says his name, he's kind of like. Oh, shit. Like, this is real, man. That's easily one of the most dangerous men in all of politics. And he just said my name live on television. And I saw a really great interview with him where he's talking about the first time that Trump met Putin. And they were actually discussing on television the idea of potentially trading Bill for some prisoners that Russia has. And he's just watching it on TV like... Uh, Trump might just hand me over. <laughs> like, that's a real possibility. And he's just sweating bullets. Like, do I get a say in this? Or is there just going to be, you know, some black SUVs that pull up and say, sorry, buddy, you're coming with us. I, I can't even imagine the anxiety you would be going through watching Trump. And I mean, as a lot of people have said, Trump was always a wild card. And you're like, this is the man who holds the key to my fate right now. And he's shaking hands with the guy that wants me dead. <laughs> like, terrifying. If you, if you read this book, I highly recommend, like, watching some interviews with him. Because he's actually quite funny in interviews. 
And he, he keeps it pretty lighthearted, even when he's talking about the possibility of him being handed over to the country that wants to imprison and murder him. Uh, he's, he's an entertaining guy, and I really enjoyed getting all of that. And if you really like this, you can even dive into, you know, his criticisms of Russia and Ukraine, you know, this war that's going on. Because it's important to keep in mind that uh, Sergei Magnitsky is Ukrainian-born, right? So he's he's seen kind of this conflict already, and he is not afraid to really publicly rip into Putin, which we have seen go wrong for a lot of people over the years. I just want to go back when you're talking about Trump and Putin shaking hands. Uh, that just made me remember something about the book. It doesn't happen that often, but it happens often enough that I sort of made a note of that, is Bill Browther describes the handshakes with certain people in the book. And I, I remember that. I was like, this is like sort of a weird detail to include. But I just, I, I just got a list, uh, a short little list here that I want to share. So at one point, he describes someone's handshake as limp. Another time, he describes another handshake as meaty. And I think this is the handshake when he meets his second wife. But I could be wrong on this, so I apologize. Uh, firm, fingers cool. There's a, another handshake that he describes their hand as shaking nervous, nervously. And then there's another handshake that he describes as hearty. Like I said earlier in this podcast, I don't think he's somebody that can necessarily read people, but there's something about his ability to interpret a handshake and what that means for how the meeting or how the discussion or how the interaction is going to go with this person. And it kind of made me self-conscious about my own handshake. I'm like, I don't know, like how would Bill Browder like describe my handshake, right? Like, do I have a firm one? Do I have a strong, like, I don't, I don't even know how to describe my own handshake. So, but it's, but then again, it's, it's not something that you can sort of decide what it is or what it isn't. It's, it's sort of whatever the other person decides that your handshake is. So uh, I'm glad that you brought that handshake up because I, I, I got a chance to sort of share my list here. <laughs> Yeah, I'm one of those ridiculous people that always hyper-focuses on the moment of handshake. You know, <laughs> like I'm always very set on having not a hostile handshake, you know, but a I'm not here to fuck around handshake, you know, like a for a formidable handshake, I would say, <laughs> is, uh, is the way I would put it. You don't want to seem like you're trying to get a point across, like you're squeezing too hard or something, but you want to seem like you mean business. That's right. You know? And uh, yeah, it's funny that you said the meaty handshake. It seems like all of the Polish businessmen he meets are like well-fed, like kind of an imposing figure with a meaty handshake and a big smile. Yeah, <laughs> You know, like they kind of remind me of like Disney character dads, <laughs> just like no neck, big square head and just like loud and boisterous and like serious, but also funny in a way. Like he talks about the one meeting he has where the guy's pouring him a drink like first thing in the morning and he's like almost afraid to say no because he's like, this might be culturally offensive <laughs> to these people because <laughs> it just seems like such a common thing to just like meet with this large, formidable man and have a drink first thing in the morning, you know? <laughs> and like vodka too, right? It's, and it's like, you know, I, I haven't had a drink in a very long time, but even like just the thought of like trying to drink Polish vodka at like nine o'clock in the morning. I was just like, oh, oh man. <laughs> yeah, it's been uh, 
over a year for me now, and the thought of having any beverage, any alcoholic beverage at nine o'clock in the morning is just like, ugh, or the idea of like shots or oh. something, because that is how a lot of it is drank over in that part of the world, oh. right? Like shot for shot, and I, I'm just like, oh. And when he dives into the food, you know, he does a really good job of explaining the food that he eats over the months in his time in Poland, just with such extreme poverty, right? It sounds so awful. Even to the point that he's like trying to travel after work to like other cities in the hopes of finding something that you could actually classify as actual food. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you want to dive into a rating on this? I do. And I want to give this book an 89. Now, that's for, for us and our track record, like that's 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 kind of a low rating. It's a phenomenal story. It's awful the corruption the finance everything about it this is this is a very good read and it's written very well that's something that we quite haven't touched on yet but it is written well there's something about it that doesn't want to make me read it again and that's why i'm choosing 89 there's there's other books that we have read in this season already in our in in our first season that i'm like yeah i could read that again but this is a book that i'm like okay i can put this on my shelf like i could lend this book out now and I probably wouldn't care if I get get it back. And I don't want to be dismissive of the story and the importance of the story and the hard work that not only went into it, but sort of getting some sort of redemption for Sergey and his family, right? But there's something about it where I don't think that I could read this book again and even remotely come close to having the same amount of enthusiasm that I had when I first read it. So I, I'm being a little bit harsh I believe with this rating, but like I said, I don't, I don't feel the need to pick this book up again and read it again. Not, not now anyways. And that might change in the future. I might read this book a year from now or five years from now and go, Oh wow, that was, that was actually really crazy. Right. But for now, for me, I'm saying it's an 89 octane. Yeah. I see. I see where you're coming from there. Generally, I would have to agree with that. I'd I can't see myself reading this again. Maybe some parts. There was some funny parts that I could dive back into again. But I mean, once you get into like, I really wouldn't want to go over, you know, his time in schooling again, his history again. Once I know that, I know that there's a few parts the you know, when they're trying to escape Russia, I could for sure go back through the part where he meets his second wife. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> it was very entertaining. I could definitely read it again. I would, I wouldn't dive back through this whole thing again. In general, just as the book itself, I would agree with an 89. I'm going to give it a 91, though, because I read the book and I listened to the book. And he didn't get narrated himself on the Audible version. But the reason I'm going to give it a 91 is the section at the end where he's talking about they watch the video with Sergey and he's tearing up and it's just this super sad moment. I... He, he reads that himself. He comes in to go through this section at the end himself. And I thought that it was such an impressive thing to do because it's a really emotional moment. And it shows how much the story means to him. And that as well as the section where he says, you know, I'm not writing this book for myself or whatever. Like he's talking about, there's a very real chance that at some point someone comes for me and I disappear and he talks about how important it is for the story to get out. It's not a book to make money. It's just the same as their YouTube videos. It's just the same as every newspaper article they put out. 
the whole book is just out there to keep the story alive and make more people aware of what's happening and what continues to happen and just to get more support for what they're trying to do to to battle this corruption in that part of the world and I don't know maybe it's a ploy but it got me for sure I was like I it just felt like such an honorable thing to do it made me like him that much more so if we're taking into consideration the written book and the audiobook, I'm I'm gonna have to give it a 91. But I 100% agree. I probably will not read this again, and that is not to for a lack of quality. It was a great read. I thoroughly enjoyed it a lot more than I expected to. This is not really my world, and you know it was highly recommended to me by my brother. But he loves this stuff, investing and high finance and all of that. And I was like, eh, well, we'll see. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be my world, but, you know, it got enough recommendations that we had to. And despite me being so unfamiliar with all of this, I enjoyed it so much. And it was quite a journey. Like we said, there was so many times where you're just like white knuckling it, you know, you know what happens and you're still just like, oh man, come on. Like, is somebody going to die here? Is somebody going to make it through? Like it's nerve wracking in a lot of places. It's funny in a lot of places and it's just super relatable. So I highly recommend reading this book. And the great thing about a book that you enjoy and you're probably never going to read again, if you're like me, I like having my books. I have a really hard time trading books or lending books because I like having them. I like having them on the shelf. I like, you know, I've got my new desk set up here with my books surrounding me. And it, it just gives me a feeling that I really enjoy. You know, I feel like I can tap into all these stories that I've read before. And so the great thing about a book like this is I'm going to be okay with, like you said, lending it out and maybe not getting it back or even better trading it. Cause then you still get another book and you know, it's like currency to me now. Oh wow. You just kind of blew my mind with referring to a book or thinking of books as a form of currency. And I think that's very appropriate for the themes that this book holds. So I like that. I like that. I'd like that attitude that you have towards books. It's a form of currency. I'd like to say that that was just my immense level of wisdom <laughs> making the finance connection, but I kind of just pulled that out of thin air and had not thought of the connection to the high finance book until you mentioned it. So maybe we can just cut out this section and it just insert me being like, well, yeah. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. That just played out really well. Oh. Yeah, but while we're on the theme of being real here and uh, relatable, sometimes, uh, you know, even a dead watch is right twice a day. <laughs> there you go. I've accidentally, I shouldn't say I've accidentally, but I've reorganized our stack of books that we're reading for the second season of the Enlightened Dirt Bakes podcast. So you're going to have to refresh my memory because I had them all in order, right? I was like, oh, once I take a book off, I'll read it and then I'll read the next book and then kind of go down the stack. But I've, for whatever reason, I've mixed up my stack inadvertently. So you're going to have to refresh my memory for what we're reading next. So the next book that we're going to be covering is Life Undercover, Coming of Age in the CIA. Now, I'm really excited about this. This is a book that I have read before, but it was, it was a fascinating read. And I'm excited to dive into it again. You know, I read this book the way most people do read through it, enjoy it, off you go. This is a book that I'm really excited to read with more of 
an analytic viewpoint, you know, the way we dissect books for the podcast, go through, take notes. I think this is going to be one that I'm going to pull a lot more out of. And this is another one where the main character is very relatable. So it's by Amaryllis Fox, right? And it's her story of being a young woman in the CIA and how that played a part in how she functioned in this largely male dominated world. And she does a really good job, just like Bill Browder did, of like being relatable. You know, she's not a superhero. She's a regular human being that went down this path. And it's a great story. Some of the things she goes through are are amazing. I actually, I really wish they would make this into a movie. It would make a phenomenal movie, especially in these times where we have so many movies with a female lead, right? Like this would be the perfect time to make it. You really could get some steam behind it. And uh, I'm excited to dive down this path here and uh, see what you think of it. And uh, again, you know, we've tried to, just like with season one, tried not to just do all like male-focused books because we can give our insight, you know, a book written by a man in some crazy scenario and then we're two men talking about it. And we saw it so much with Lone Rider (laughs) by Elspeth Beard that like there's going to be some moments where it's a female talking about like, her own personal connection to things or issues that she's going through. And we're just like, I don't know how to discuss this, you know? And I, I had such a fun time with that last season. I'm really excited to do it again with this one. And uh, especially since, you know, she's in a dangerous world and like she becomes a mother during that path. And she talks about her relationships in this time. It's, it's, It's a great book. I'm excited to see what you think about it. I'm excited to get some feedback from the listeners. And I'm just excited to read it again. You know, it just gives me a good excuse to go back through it. Yeah, I'm I'm amped. This is, uh, so far at this point in the season, I've been impressed and surprised and grateful for the content of of the books that we've read thus far. So I'm, I'm only looking forward to going deeper and deeper and deeper into our season here on the Light and Dirt Bakes podcast. 100% 100% all the way to the boss level, which is Chaos by Tom O'Neill. I cannot wait to get to that book, man. Like, it's it's life-changing. So, And we're just building up along the that, way. That book is like so, the Jumanji board. This is like vibrating and you hear the, the drum beats, right? <laughs> I could not have put it better. I mean, I've read it and it's still like that. You know, I guarantee you that's going to be a book where I go back through and it's not going to be less impactful and I'm probably I'm probably going to pick up on a lot of things that I didn't the first time. It's it's just so good. So if you're listening to this and uh and you've got thoughts on the books that we've covered so far, um you've got thoughts on the books coming up, let us know if you've read any of the, of the upcoming books already, reach out to us, let us know what you thought about the ones we've covered or if you have any suggestions, you know, in this ge- general topic. Like I've I love this. I love this stuff. You know, conspiracy, espionage. I love this. Reach out to me. You know, I'm enlightened underscore dirtbag on Instagram. Let me know what other books in in this uh, in this genre that uh, you you really liked, and uh, maybe we can have a discussion because I've read a bunch of other ones that are very similar. So uh, we can share some ideas and give each other some new books to read. And I'm just at Jonah Conjo on Instagram. And I realized I made a mistake a few weeks ago. I took my Instagram private, and then I realized that doing that, it would be more difficult for people to get a hold of me. So I made my Instagram public again. And 
So my apologies if for whatever reason in that day and a half when my Instagram was private and you tried to reach out and you couldn't, I apologize. I am, My Instagram is wide open again, so don't hesitate to message either myself or version two. Let us know what you think about these books. Let us know about books that you didn't like. Let us know about books that you do like because I'm just always happy to talk about what people are reading. And if there's anyone out there that's extremely frustrated with Jonah making his Instagram private, you can send all your hate mail to me so I can have a good laugh. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Uh, It's been a great time going through this book. Again, highly recommended. And uh, we'll see you on the next one.